0: Hi, my name is Jeff Pagano, and thanks for tuning in to the Harpen and Rugby podcast. Harpenandrugby.net is an unofficial fan site for Leinster and Ireland rugby, with write-ups of all the big matches and regular coverage of the latest news and opinion via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course this pod. If you haven't already, please subscribe. we on Apple Podcasts as well as a host of other platforms. This week we've done something a little bit different. I wanted to learn more about the disciplinary committee hearing. So I had a chat with the author of a great blog called Rugby and the Law and we walked through the process from start to finish. So without any further ado, here's how we got on. Now it's time for our back and forward chat and joining me this week to help me understand the process involved in a disciplinary committee hearing is the author of a great blog called rugbyandthelaw.com and here's a quote which I've taken and paraphrased I should say for legal reasons that explains what the site does as the sport of rugby union for better or for worse is becoming increasingly juridified this blog will try to offer principled legal analysis so many thanks for coming on the pod today Mr Ben Cisneros.
1: Hi, Jeff. Thanks very much for, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure pleasure to speak with you.
0: Yeah, indeed. Great having you on. So, well, first of all, let's talk, um, let you give a chance to talk about yourself and uh, how and why you started up this blog.
1: Yeah, so I'm a trainee solicitor at a boutique law firm called Morgan Sports Law. We specialize in uh, resolving sports-related disputes and protecting athletes' rights. Um, and I set up Rugby in the Law uh, a couple of years ago just to sort of really develop my own, I suppose, portfolio and, uh, and, uh, little area of expertise uh in in, in rugby and and uh, the legal issues related to it um and, and and really it's it's just sort of grown over the past couple of years um my time has has become increasingly um short in terms of the time i have available to to, to write blog posts and stuff but um I, I've, I've put together a, a fair amount of content over the last few years and, and yeah it's really just aimed at providing a bit of insight um on on the sort of myriad of legal issues that crop up in the sport of rugby which you know it happens quite a lot because it's a it's a sport with with a lot of moving parts um and that obviously leads to a lot of disciplinary cases but also off the field you know it's a relatively new professional sport and so I think we tend to see quite a lot of disputes because people are sort of uh, still vying vying for power and uh finding out how the professional sports industry works for rugby
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's something that's like, like you say, since the game went pro, I mean, it's only about uh, 20 odd years ago. Um, th- th- there's been issues like, you know, contracts, TV deals rights uh you know and and then of course there's the whole area of concussion as well how that involves with players and um but uh just to just to just to get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about today um this is a subject I've always wanted to be able to learn about so I'm delighted to have someone on that can help me through it um we planned this chat for a while and I'm happy with the way the timing turned out because um normally my focus for for my side is on Leinster and Ireland rugby and as you might know last weekend they had a big final um Against uh, the big rivals Munster, so that's a that's a big game that's always got the possibility of a big controversy. So uh, since we had this chat already planned, I was worried there might have been a particular incident from that game which um, which might look like I was trying to litigate that with you rather than um, rather than doing anything else. But uh, in actual fact, what I want to do is I just want to walk through the process. Of a typical uh, hearing, um, you know, disciplinary committee hearing. Well, try to try as hard as possible to avoid getting too bogged down by specifics. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you need to cite an example to help explain something, that's fine. Um, but I just don't want to look like I have some kind of agenda going into this because because I don't like a lot of times when we're talking about it. It's when the subject does come up. There's always an incident right there that we're that we that we're trying to talk about. So I, I so just to provide a framework for the future. Maybe we can do this now. So what I've done is I've come up with this uh, imaginary game um, uh, between generic rugby and the average town randoms. Now, on paper, it's a real barn burner. But um, <laughs> this one, uh, in a competition called uh, the World Super Champions Top Pro Premier Cup, All right, just to avoid ev- any semblance of resembling anything else. And in this game, um, a player wearing jersey number X uh, called Jim Normal Guy gets a siding. Right um, so that's that, that's what we're going to be working off. now first of all, the the governing body of the sport is called world rugby. It's called the international Rugby boards. Um, they, so they're responsible for the laws for you know you know I suppose enforcing them is, is, is a word, but also you know coming up with new ones and tweaking them and all that kind of stuff they, but are they the bot when there is a disciplinary committee hearing for a player, are they the final arbiter behind it or does it to do with the competition itself?
1: Yeah, it's to do with the competition itself really. World Rugby doesn't tend to get involved with the disciplinary hearings outside of its own competitions. Um, so so for, the, for the World Cup, for example, yeah, everything was operated by World Rugby or, or Rugby World Cup Limited. Um, but similarly for, for some international matches, they, they have a role. But for, for competitions like the Six Nations, for the premiership for pro 14 they all have their own uh, disciplinary bodies normally run by either the league i think in the case of the pro 14 or the union in the case of the premiership so the are a few deals with the disciplinary issues and then you know, the six nations has their own disciplinary committees etc so no it, it tends not to be world rugby world rugby in certain instances can appeal um against decisions of dis- disciplinary committees so you might see an appeal to a um, you know, brought by world rugby, but that's very rare. Um, and occasionally, like I say, with international matches that, you know, world rugby sort of has jurisdiction as regards the disciplinary issues, but it, it's more often than not um, a sort of league specific or competition specific um, body.
0: Mm. Okay. And um, all right. So it so it's the competition itself. And um, so w- when... When in the lead up to a game, the competition will appoint uh, a body of officials for that game. So there'll be the, the match official, the referee, assistant referee one, assistant referee two, a TMO, a fourth official, and um, but there's also a citing commissioner appointed for that match. Now, is this is that citing commissioner exclusively appointed for that match, or might they get a few? Would they be a, sort of a blanket over a few games?
1: Um, I, th- I think they, they may well get a few. Yeah, I, th- I think it probably varies from competition to competition, depending on how many commissioners they have. I mean, obviously, if there's more than one game going on at the same time, I, you'd imagine there'd be different citing commissioners. But yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, it can be the case that they have a few. Um, but of course, it's important to point out at the start as regards disciplinary issues is that it's not just the citing commissioner that, that, that is important, because whenever a player gets a red card, they will face a disciplinary committee. So the citing commissioner can cite a player, but that only takes place where they haven't been red carded. Where they've been red carded, there's no need for the citing commissioner to get involved because they've already they'll already be called before a disciplinary committee. But of course, yeah, the citing commissioner, if they see something that they think the referee's missed or hasn't sanctioned strongly enough, then they can step in and, and make a citing commissioner's report and, and um, basically uh, call, call the player to a disciplinary hearing in effect.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's what I was going to ask you. The um, the so the commissioner the commissioner themselves is they're they're watching the game as well at the same time and making their own evaluation and they're but their job obviously isn't it's they're they're not inspecting the referee as a you know they're they're, they're not overseeing the referee they're just basically being an extra pair of eyes for what's going on. Yeah, in I the think particular that, game.
1: I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I you know they'll inevitably watch footage back as well because. Mm. know uh, you can appreciate i'm sure that these incidents are often not not um necessarily clear-cut on first viewing at full speed um but so so yeah it's it's they're there basically to provide uh, another pair of eyes and to ensure that sort of serious incidents of foul play don't go unchecked
0: and um to what extent it are they are they permitted feedback from uh, the coaches of the two teams I mean do they did you know how do they get from watching the game to coming to a decision that a that a sighting okay you say a red card is an automatic hearing okay that's fine but how do they get to the process from watching the game to um, actually calling a hearing and what input would be allowed in the meantime
1: yeah so teams can make referrals to the citing commissioner you know if they feel like there's something that that was missed on the day and, and they want to be looked at that they can do that. Um, so for example, in, in, the rugby world cup, 2019, I believe um, Fiji made a citing commissioner's referral um, in relation to the, the, the incident where Reese Hodge in the opening match um, tackled or, did, or sort of shoulder charged Pasele Yato. Um, so that, that's one example, I think where there was a, there was a referral. Um, but other than that, you know, the siting commissioner will, will, make, will make the siting um, and then, that, you know, that will lead straight to a disciplinary process, you know, with, with the union who, who will then sort of bring, bring the charges, if you like. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And uh, generally also in these, uh, com- again, probably depending on the competition, yeah. there's a certain length of time between the, the final whistle and when there's, there's a window in which yeah. a commissioner uh, can be called. And uh, if, if if you haven't heard anything within that window, what is it, usually 48 hours or it's, something? Yeah, like that?
1: It's, it's either 24 or 48 hours normally, depending on the competition, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have that period of time to make the decision to make a sighting. So obviously in that time, you'd imagine they'll be reviewing the footage, making their mind up as to whether they think it, it you know, it merited a red card. Because that's that's ultimately what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's it's whether there should have been a red card. That there can there can be occasions where, where a citing commissioner will say that should have been a yellow card, and then they'll they'll give what's known as a citing commissioner's warning. Um, that's not used all that often, but perhaps it should be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but there is that power. But it tends to be you know we tend to be focused on on red cards, and that's where most disciplinary hearings sort of happen that there are disciplinary hearings when a player has sort of accumulated a number of yellow cards but it tends to be the case that um most disciplinary hearings are are to do with red cards or or where a citing commissioner has decided it should have been a red
0: card yeah that's generally because i mean the red card would ultimately have uh sanctions associated with it depending on previous uh, behavior and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there were actual bans that would affect their their game um, in the future. So yeah, okay. So um, all right. So we've had the we've had the match, we've had the incident. Um, the signing commissioner has reviewed this and uh, decided um, this guy Jim, normal guy, needs to go up before a hearing. Um, so the, the the date is set. I say it's on the Wednesday during the week. Um, so. I suppose what I, what I want to say is, uh, from, from all of us who would get all our, uh, who compare everything to things like law and order and stuff, um, this hearing, how, like the the, the the process of it, the assumptions going into it, all this kind of stuff, how does that differ from what we would consider a, a, a court process?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately sort of loosely based on that sort of process. It, it's It's effectively an adversarial process. So, you know, you have the union, you know, let's take the the example of the premiership where the RFU deals with disciplinary issues. The RFU, the union, will be sort of prosecuting and then the player will will be defending themselves or, you know, they, they often have a legal representative or a representative of the club who will defend them. Um, and, you know, both sides will get a chance to put their cases effectively. And I imagine, that you know, there'll be some discussion with the panel as well. So there'll be a panel of of three um let's call them judges, you know, disciplinary committee members or judicial officers um, who are the, the equivalent of judges. Uh, and they'll, they'll ultimately be the ones making the decision and, you know, they'll ask questions, etc. cetera. And, and there'll be a chance for, for witnesses to, to give their, their evidence. Um, you know, that tends to be most often just the player. But, but there can be, you know, if, if there's a case where an injury has been caused to a player, then there may be ev- medical evidence heard by you know, one of the team doctors um, equally a coach may have something to say about about the incident um so so yeah it, it does bear some resemblance to mm. to sort of legal proceedings um but it, it's much less formal yeah um
0: so the principal you know, pretty... the principal uh, characters on the day would be you'd have the commissioner and you say they they're on a panel so there's there'd be three on the panel so
1: would... it's not the commissioner oh okay the commissioner the commissioner makes the sighting okay and, th- and then the matter gets handed over to to the disciplinary committee itself, and that's separate. So the citing commissioner, like you said, is sort of an additional referee. Um, they, the referee, would never sit on the disciplinary committee. So the disciplinary committee is independent, and it should be independent of the union, and obviously of the club, of the player, uh, and and normally it's you know independent of the league as well. Um, and so these people will normally you'll have the chair who is legally trained. And then on World Rugby's disciplinary committees and on the RFU's disciplinary committees, if not others, but they're the ones with which I'm most familiar, um, you tend to have ex-players who sit sort of with the chair to, to, to make this decision, obviously to bring some sort of player empathy and to sort of reflect on their experiences in the, in the heat of the moment where things can be a little bit different to the cold light of day. Um, And they'll be the ones making the decision. Sometimes you have panels where, you know, all three judicial officers are legally qualified. um, But it seems to be an increasing trend that there are ex-players who get trained, obviously, in in disciplinary procedures um, who, who will add their experience to the panel.
0: And on the player's side, obviously, you have the player himself who's present. And would he always have representation with him? It would be players union or what? what how would he would always
1: have. Well, in my experience, we would always have some form of representation. Um, very often it is just someone from the club or, or from their union, if they're playing, if it's an international match. It's not always a legal representative. You know, sometimes a club will have someone in their, you know, a secretary or something, someone who's got some legal background. Um, so they might get involved. But very often it's just the team manager
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, who, who inevitably, you know, given their role, will have some experience of these sort of proceedings. But but it's not always a lawyer. And, and actually, I think it's an interesting point to be made there. So I've r- there was a recent decision that I've been reading the Chris Ashton case, um, <clears throat> which has just just come out in, in England to do with a, 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 a shoulder charge in a ruck, And he didn't have any legal representation. And there's a couple of points in the case where I sort of query whether the same outcome would have been reached had had he had a lawyer. So, for example, and this is something we'll probably get into a bit later, but because he had previous bans, they actually added a week and then also refused to deduct a week for mitigation, which is something you often hear about. So Mm. they sort of gave him a double whammy for the fact that he had previous, whereas very often um, that doesn't happen. And his previous bans are actually quite old and often old bands are not sort of not taken account of. So these are the sort of things where, you know, if, if you had legal representation, you'd probably get picked up on and, and um, trashed out a little bit more. But I, I wonder, and I, you know, with with great respect to, to whoever was representing Chris, um, because it was someone from, from the club, not a lawyer. Um, I, I do wonder if, you know, those sort of cases show the benefit of having legal representation, because ultimately, like I said, it is a legal process. I often get a lot of people saying to me on Twitter, "Oh, you know, let's why why do we have this legal process? Let's ditch the, the lawyers. It's so unnecessary. It's a sport. It's not it's not law." And um, I, I think that's completely wrong mm. because ultimately you're talking here about bans which disrupt a player's career, which stop them from from playing their career. Um, and although yeah, although although in most cases they'll keep their job, you know they're not playing, so they're not progressing their careers and also they're missing out on things like win bonuses so ultimately you're affecting a player's ability to earn um you know i I imagine their sponsors won't be too happy if they're missing matches etc so it's really important that players rights are protected and so that's why it's it's essential that there is a legal process players have legal rights to you know to a fair hearing Mm, and that's been decided in case in, in you know in 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 cases that have been brought before the courts challenging decisions of sports governing bodies in the past Mm. Um, so it, it, it is crystal clear that players ha- have these rights, and, and that is why there must be a sort of semi um, judicial process, a quasi judicial process. So <laughs> it is a real bugbear of mine that people say, you know, we need to ditch the lawyers, because actually uh, well, the lawyers are there really for the players' benefit.
0: Well, also, I mean, if you don't, if you don't have this, like you say, quasi legal process, that's something that looks like you're they're taking it seriously. Um, there's always the possibility of it being taken out into a real court. And that's one thing they they, they, they definitely don't want.
1: Yeah, well, I- exactly. That is one risk. Um, you know, if, if a player doesn't receive a fair hearing and they get banned for a long time, for example, they may well be able to challenge it in, in the real courts. I mean, mm. you know, there's various parts of the regulations which would probably try to prevent that happening, but, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, and the other thing, obviously, is that the governing bodies or the leagues themselves have, have a role, have a duty, to uphold the laws of the game, and to stamp out, you know, foul play, mm. because ultimately that keeps other players safe. So, yeah. re- really, you know, yes, there's got to be some some sort of rugby understanding in the process, and there is, but you can't say that there can't be any any legal principle involved, because mm. if there wasn't, the whole
0: thing would just fall apart. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So, um, all right. So we've had the hearing um the uh you know the the charge has been read out the players made a statements they there's there's probably some back and forth between representatives whatever and um so eventually we have to come out of this with a decision and a ruling and a sanction um is that made in the room or do they do they retreat and uh, release a statement later
1: I think it will depend. I think um, it depends on the, probably on the complexity of the case. Sometimes, you know, if it's pretty straightforward, I would imagine that the decision will be made there and then, and then the full written reasons will be sort of given later. But, um, you know, in more complicated cases, the panel may well want to deliberate for some time. Um, so, so I imagine it depends, but probably quite often in rugby cases, it's re- relatively straightforward. So, you know, a, a decision will probably be made there and then as to the length of the ban um i think it's probably important just to dwell a little bit more on on the process of deciding the ban Mm -hmm. because i think this is something that people tend to get quite confused about so really there are there are three stages um to determining whether there will be a ban at all and then how long the ban will be so the first stage is the red card test so there when, so the players, you start by having a charge against the player. So they're charged with breaking, you know, X law. Let's say it's the high tackle law, um, and the player will then choose whether to accept the charge or, you know, to say it, it merited a red card or say that it did not. So that they might say actually, yes, it was an act of foul play, but it didn't merit a red card. Um, so there, they will be challenging the red card or challenging the sighting. So what they're saying is that the red card test was not met. So if they're doing that, the burden is on them to prove that it should not have been a red card or that it should not have been a sighting. So they have to show it's more likely than not that it was not, you know, a high tackle or was not a, a shoulder to the head and a run, that sort of thing. So that's that stage one. If if they succeed in arguing that it, it wasn't a red, it shouldn't have been a red card, well, that's the end of the matter. If if they fail, then of course we then proceed to to determining how long the sanction should be. So then we get to stage two, and that's the assessment of seriousness. The assessment of seriousness basically is what, what the panel does to determine what the starting point for the ban will be. So you'll take into account various factors. So for example, whether the player acted intentionally or, or only recklessly, whether there was an injury sustained to the to the player who, who was essentially the victim, the the extent of any provocation, whether there was a retaliation, um, the vulnerability of the victim, um, the, the serious, you know, the gravity of, of, the, uh, of the act of foul play. So if it was just a sort of a uh an accident not accidental but a, a reckless act which didn't really cause any injury um and is sort of slightly more technical then then it will be a sort of a lower end of the gravity scale whereas if it's sort of a really deliberate act you know punch or repeated punches which leave the the victim unconscious then obviously it's going to be right at the very top of the gravity scale so you put all those factors together and that's that's the assessment of seriousness and you work out well what was it was it a highly serious offense? Was it you know, a low degree of seriousness or was it somewhere in the middle? And then you refer to the guidelines on sanctioning. Uh, and these are contained for anyone who wants to look, they're in World Rugby Regulation 17, Appendix 1. And they're, they're, they'll then be in you know, the various competitions, own regulations, et cetera. But that's that's where they're centrally found because every competition or, or, or union has to follow, has to follow those. And they set out the various starting points depending on the degree of seriousness. So you'll have a low end starting point, you'll have a mid range starting point, and then you'll have the top end starting point. So let's just take the example of of the high tackle. Um, actually, with high tackle, if there's contact with the head or, or neck area, then it's a mandatory mid-range starting point always. So that's another principle to just be aware of, that wherever there's head contact, it has to be a mid-range entry point. So regardless of whether you thought it was a sort of a minor degree of seriousness, it has to be at least m- mid-range in terms of seriousness because of the importance of encouraging players to avoid um, the head area due to risks of concussion etc so so that's that's sort of stage two um and and with a high tackle like i said that would be that would be a six week starting point because it's mid-range that's six weeks the the top end offenses you know the starting points can be much higher uh, and normally there's a discretion to go beyond just you know the 12 weeks or whatever it would be twelve weeks plus. So if it's a really, really serious incident, then then the panel has discretion to go much higher.
0: Mm.
1: And then we get to stage three, which is where you consider off-field and yeah, off-field mitigating factors and off-field aggravating factors. So the aggravating factors would be if the if the player was a repeat offender. You know, if if they've got a really bad track record, then you might add an extra week to the starting point. Uh, this is what happened to Chris Ashton. Uh, and equally, if there's a particular trend of incidents that you feel needs to be stamped out, then the panel may choose to add, add a week for that as well. So, for example, if there was a, a real spate of gougings or, or sort of, I should say contact with the eye in, in a particular league, perhaps, and it was felt that it was, that was sort of a cultural issue, then the panel might use to you know seek to exercise their discretion to to add to the ban. To, to try and get rid of that. but that's, So that's aggravating factors. They do, they're much less common. I mean, like I say, I was very surprised to see that happen in Chris Ashton's case. But the, the off-field mitigating factors is something that we see every time, every van, uh, they are considered. Well, they have to be considered all the time, uh, both, both aggravating and mitigating. But, but the application of mitigating factors we see almost in every case. Um, so, so these things are things like the player's previous record, the way they have pleaded you know if they've accepted the red card or if they've challenged the red card their behavior at, at the hearing uh, and and their character generally their level of experience in the game so if they're a very if they're a very inexperienced player let's say they're you know they're an 18 year old who's just turned professional um, then they'll be given a bit more credit whereas if they're you know a 35 year old pro who's who's been around the block a few times then then they won't so those factors go into the mitigating factors pool and the panel has the discretion to reduce the starting point by up to 50 percent so let's take the high tackle example assuming there were no aggravating off-field factors the starting point is six weeks so then the mitigation could bring it down the off-field mitigation could bring it down to three weeks so if all the mitigating factors are present so you've got a really you've got a clean record you've accepted it was a red card you're of good character. You haven't you haven't done anything particularly outrageous. Your level of remorse that's another factor. You know whether you apologised um, straight after the incident to the player and you, you show that you're you're genuinely remorseful for what happened. Then you'll you'll get 50% mitigation. It's when there aren't all those factors present that you won't get full mitigation. So for example, if you if you contest the red card, you you should not get full mitigation. That's that's quite clear in the in the sort of disciplinary case law. So in a case where you challenge the red card, you, you'll probably, let's say it was a six-week starting point, you'll probably end up with a four-week ban. But then if you also had a bad disciplinary record, you also, you won't get credit for that either. So, you know, you might only get one week off. So you might be looking at a five-week ban, et cetera, et cetera. If you haven't shown remorse, if you've been a bit rude at the hearing, then you might not get any weeks off. But that's, that's quite rare. So that's, that's basically how it works. And that's mm-hmm. how you arrive at your final ban. Um, so, like I said, three stages: the red card test, the assessment of seriousness, and then the consideration of off-field mitigating and aggravating factors. So, hopefully, that hopefully that
0: clears that's very a few good. things yeah. up. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. Just a few things on that. I mean, first of all, this is exactly why um, I didn't want to give a specific uh, reason myself. I'm glad you used them, but the reason I didn't, like, because in the Chris Ashton example, there's plenty of fans here in Ireland who would want him cited just for his try celebrations. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, but no uh but on those three points that's that's really good because I, I i think i understand the um the rfu have been coming up with these kind of infographics it's kind of a flow mm. chart so when they have a decision it, it's really good it just shows you the process they went through all those three stages you outlined yeah. and it's very transparent way and as well as coming out with a d- uh, decision in legalese they also come out with this to show exactly why uh where they come to so it's a good Good method of yeah
1: I, I think they're really really good really impressive graphics actually because it, it's it's quite irritating the amount of sort of uproar there is every time a player gets banned and it's you know it's not quite what people were expecting. Mm. Um so I think it's it's really important for these governing bodies or you know the leagues to be transparent about the disciplinary process. And actually there are plenty of examples where there could be more transparency. For example the Six Nations their disciplinary process is is virtually opaque. Um, you know, the, the decisions aren't published, there's little, you know, yes, they give a press release about the reasons, and of course that's important, but, you know, I think there could be a lot more done, because I think people people need to try and understand, and if, if even the lawyers can't read the decisions, then there's a little chance of it being, uh, you know, of there being the opportunity for it to be explained fully.
0: Mm. And the other thing about, uh, you're talking about the three-step process, is that, obviously, as these decisions are like we we just had a Six Nations where there was a lot of such um, decisions to be made on mm. red cards and stuff, and you you we're noticing more and more, the referees are they're almost talking through those points that you've just said to each other in real time. I mean they know they're being heard, but it's they they they've come up with a language and they're almost talking in that language as if it's as if they're almost doing um, the, the, the committee hearing on the field to avoid it happening, you know, they're going through the steps of the process to show.
1: Well, I, I I think it's quite important to, to distinguish between the process on the field and off the field, because it's not quite the same, although some of the same words do come up, it's not quite the same process. So effectively the, the process that the refereeing team goes through on the field, that's essentially the red card test step only. They, They won't be considering the, the, you know, the assessment of seriousness and, and the mitigating factors. Yes, you will hear reference to mitigating factors, but that is on-field mitigating factors, as opposed to off-field mitigating factors. So they won't be talking about you know whether whether players got previous record, etc. Right. What what they're concerned about is whether that incident met the th- met the threshold for a red card on, on the field of play. Mm-hmm. So you know with, with the high high tackles and and uh, head contact. Now we have the head contact process. So they'll be going through the steps of that. And yes, you'll hear you'll hear reference you know you know what was the what was the degree of danger was was you know they'll consider things like the degree of force the the speed at which it happened whether the player sort of made an attempt to lower their height um whether, whether something happened which changed the course of events so if the player was dropping and th- those would be considered as mitigating factors um but that's that's talking about mitigating factors in the, in the sense of bringing a, a, a decision down from a red card to a yellow um rather than to do with the length of the ban mm-hmm. but but yeah it's they, they they've got a real really clear process in place um that they go through and, and yeah it, it is really helpful to hear the way they go through it on the field I think it's really important for everyone I mean it's, it's a bit of a bugbear of mine that football uh, by comparison just doesn't have that process in place and I think that so much would be uh, improved about football if if they if they followed rugby's you know, ref mic approach of having a really, really clear and transparent decision-making process that's, that's uh, visible for all.
0: Yeah, the VAR has been a real, real, di- I mean, disaster from what, what I can see every time. And you're just like, you, you have no idea what's going to happen next. Yeah, rugby's always been more transparent that way.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that um, football could learn a lot from rugby's use of um, technology, you mm. know, whether it's uh, TMO or, or, or ref mics.
0: Definitely. Okay. Well, that just leaves. Um, okay. So the the decision's been made. The the ban has been given, and the reasons, the mitigation, all that's been taken into effect, and a release has been done. And the, always, the final line of the decision is always the player is entitled to appeal, something along those lines. So, just briefly, how 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 would that appeals process work if the if the player feels he's been hard done by?
1: Yeah. So appeals are pretty rare. Um, and that's because the grounds on which you can appeal are quite narrow. So normally, a player will have forty-eight hours to decide where they want to appeal. And if they do appeal, then their decision will then their appeal, sorry, will be heard by a different committee. So it will be different, a different panel, um, an appeal committee. And so again, there'll probably be a, a chair, which is who's legally qualified, and then two two panel members who 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 aren't or who are ex players. Yes, but they may also be legally qualified people in, in certain instances. Um, but the grounds on which you can appeal are quite narrow. So it's things like, for example, if, if the panel made an error of what's known as error of law. So if, if they applied, um, for example, the red card test or the, if they went through the assessment of seriousness wrong, then, then you may have grounds for an appeal. Equally, if the sanction was so excessive as to be unfair, that's that's another ground, for example. So so there you'd be saying, well, you know, they gave me two weeks more than I deserved, or um, you know, one week more than I deserved. Then you may have grounds for appeal. But w- what an appeal is not is not just having another go at the original hearing. So you can't then just sort of start from scratch um, and just sort of ignore what's gone before. What the appeal committee will do is they will essentially review the decision of the disciplinary committee. So they will be looking at that and asking, well, did they make any errors? Basically, in, in their decision making process, and and they, all, they will they inevitably give some weight to the to the reasoning of the disciplinary committee because they recognise you know, you know they're not they're not stupid they're they're not they're doing they're properly trained um, so it can be quite difficult to get a different result on appeal um, because you sort of have to overcome quite a high threshold so that's why we don't see them very often but um, in certain instances they are um, you know they they they, they do happen. Uh, and bans can be changed but like i say because of the narrow grounds it's not just a, a rehearing of the case um it, it can be tricky
0: and is it possible that if you do appeal um and you fail you can get extra because because you appealed can that happen? not
1: just it's not just because you've appealed mm. um that's not my understanding okay I I think it has happened where a disciplinary, sorry, where an appeal committee has decided to increase a ban because, of course, the RFU can, sorry, I'm thinking I'm very English focused. The the league or or the competition, the union can can sort of make arguments to increase the ban. They 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 themselves can appeal if they think it was too lenient. And and you know you do see that if a player is is um, sort of let go with no ban if if they're found essentially not guilty, um, then then the league may appeal itself to, 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 to sort of try and get that decision overturned. So it, it, can, it can change the outcome.
0: Yeah. OK, well, that's brilliant, Ben. Um, that's, you know, it's given me a, a much greater understanding of the process. Um, as we're talking, we're, we're just about to go into a big weekend of uh, European action. Um, so hopefully by the time this, this goes out, there hasn't been too many causes for more for more, uh, for more um, commissioner hearings uh, in the meantime. But it's good, it is good to have an understanding of the framework. From someone who knows knows what they're talking about, so check out um, check out Ben's blog. It's called uh, rugbyandthelaw.com He offers um, posts on you know specific decisions and gives his views on um, on on what's happening. And, and 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 like you say, it's not just discipline; it's also um, areas of concussion, player contracts, and stuff like that. So do check it out rugbyandthelaw.com You'll also find him on Twitter at, at rugbyandthelaw. Um, so that's great, Ben. I want to thank you again for coming on, and uh, we hope to have you on again soon.
1: Thanks very much, Jeff. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Ben for the chat. Next week, I'll be assembling a panel of Leinster fans to talk about our season so far. Hopefully, we'll still be challenging for a fifth star by then. As always, follow me on Twitter at harpenonrugby Rugby during the Exeter match at the weekend. Hop on the Facebook page after the full-time whistle to leave your thoughts. And stay tuned to harpenonrugby.net the rest of the time for our regular features. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Slon.